it, it, this is a topic when people, you know, when you write books on topics like this, people ask you to come and speak. And now I'd rather speak on other topics, frankly. I'd, I'd rather speak on arguments for God's existence. I'd rather speak on, uh, you know, even the problem of evil. Um, in a general way, but this is something that is a topic that uh, gets, uh, gets us asking a lot of questions, uh, and uh, this is a topic that has led to a lot of confusion, a lot of uh, even anger uh, when they read what is uh, portrayed in the scriptures, uh, and uh, at least how they uh, take it at, uh, face value, at surface value. But uh, what I'd like to do is begin by reading a text from Deuteronomy 7, and uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn in there, but it's one of those very uh, challenging texts. There's a similar one in, uh, in Deuteronomy 20, but uh, I'll come back to Deuteronomy 7 and, uh, uh, and, and comment on it. But let me uh, read to you from the first uh, couple of verses of this chapter. Deuteronomy 7.1, it says, When the Lord your God shall bring you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and shall clear away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God shall deliver them before you and shall defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. Actually, let me just flip over to Deuteronomy uh, 20 which uh, says something similar and uh, adds, a little, uh, adds a little strength uh, to, the, uh, to the command. Uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter uh, 20, uh, verses 16 to 18. It says, Only in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them. Again, there's the list of those nations. Uh, As the Lord your God has commanded you, in order that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things, which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. Well, as we examine this and other texts and themes about violence in the Old Testament, I'll only be able to give something of a summary of things that are covered in the book that uh, Matthew Flanagan and I have co-authored, Did God Really Command Genocide, published by uh, Baker Books. Uh, So I'll just give you, again, a a brief summary of those things, and we'll have some time for question and answer afterwards. So so let's begin, first of all, with some preliminary considerations, and it's a long list of preliminaries, uh, but it helps set the context for looking at some of the specific texts Uh, that we'll be looking at later on in our conversation. First, it's helpful to remember that in the ancient Near East, there is a presumption of war, that there are certain, there's a certain given that if you aren't going to fight, uh, you will not be around much longer. I mean, you could fight and lose and you won't be around much longer, but, uh, but, 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 Warfare was certainly part of the way of life uh, in the ancient Near East, something that we are not as used to uh, in our era of democracy in the West. Uh, although, had a, uh, it's kind of just a little side note here, uh, had a little concern yesterday. I have a daughter who's in Paris, 
and a son who was flying into Paris on his way to India, uh, who's doing his master's uh, with Azusa Pacific, and he's going to be spending 20 months in India to do his field work. And so uh, yesterday we were quite concerned about uh, what was happening in Paris and hadn't heard from our kids in Paris all day, uh, but thankfully we were able to, uh, to talk with them last night. But uh, uh, just... You know, as we were looking at the map of where my uh, daughter is an au pair uh, and she cares for family, that was pretty close to where the action was happening. In fact, they went to a Bible study yesterday and found out at the Bible study uh, of the events that had happened just up the street from them uh, at this Bible study, uh, namely where the, uh, where the uh, killing had taken place uh, by the terrorists in Paris. And a lot of people, I, I should say, you know, will, will often make this comparison of uh, what you see going on in, uh, with regard to terrorist activity and comparing um, what, what you see in Deuteronomy 20 with, uh, with this sort of a thing. And we'll try to sort out some of those things. But the presumption of war is certainly there, that there is a certain givenness to warfare in the ancient Near East. A lot of atheists portray the commands that God gives with regard to the Canaanites or other people groups that we'll talk about, Midianites and Amalekites, uh, as though God is somehow speaking dispassionately without any sort of concern for uh, the well-being of, uh, of, of the people he's made. Uh, well, this would be to misunderstand the upshot of Scripture, that God is one who is often doing things with a grieved heart, doing things punishing reluctantly. Uh, God does not desire the death of the wicked, but he does, as we read throughout the Old Testament, bring judgment. Uh, Jesus himself in the New Testament, let's not forget that Jesus speaks in the same sort of language about judgment. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Chorazin. Uh, the deeds that have been performed in you were performed in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. Uh, Jesus says things like if a person you know, leads one of these little ones uh, into sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and for him to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus is the one who predicts judgment upon Israel and speaks uh, with great forcefulness about this judgment. But he is also one who weeps over the very Jerusalem that is going to be destroyed by the Romans. So we see God in the Old Testament giving commands, but let us not forget that God is grieved at sin, that God does not desire the death of the wicked, that God desires for nations to repent, for people to turn to him. And we see that Jonah, when he goes off into, uh, to Nineveh, it's precisely because he knows that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, that he doesn't want to go to his enemies, the Ninevites, because they just may well repent and God may well relent, which is indeed what takes place. So God gives commands. He brings judgment with a grieved heart. We see him in Genesis 6 uh, bringing judgment upon the earth because of the rebellion uh, of human beings, of the uh, of the. Uh, rampant sin uh, and the moral downward spiral that is taking place uh, in, that, uh, in that time of history. But God does so with a grieved heart. He's grieved about all of this and, and reluctantly brings judgment. He doesn't delight in judgment. As we read in the Old Testament scriptures, there are circumstances in which God issues commands to people who have hardened hearts, 
and so as we go through the Old Testament, it's, it's helpful to keep in mind that even in a uh, society where warfare is part of the order of the day, that God uses this less than optimal circumstance to bring about judgment upon the Canaanites. We do see some people who repent, and I, I point that out in the, in, the, in the book. We see Rahab. We also see Shechemites uh, in the land of Canaan who end up joining in this covenant renewal ceremony in uh, Joshua chapter 8, uh, but I won't go into detail there. Now, a common criticism, and you can read about this in the book, uh, Did God Really Command Genocide? People saying, well, what if God were to command this sort of a thing today? You know, what about those Muslim terrorists? What if God told them to go ahead and uh, inflict uh, terror where they could and to, uh, to kill innocent human beings and so forth? Well, then they would have to do that, right? Well, as we look at the situation in the land of Canaan and the situation with the terrorists, we see some things that are quite different. For one thing, uh, as, as we'll see later on, we see uh, a God who commands in the Old Testament, who accompanies those commands with public signs and wonders that make clear that God's command to Moses or God's command to Joshua is something that comes not from their own private revelation, uh, some sort of like with Joseph Smith or Muhammad uh, in a forest or a desert, uh, where they say, God told me this, but you have public signs for the maybe wavering Israelite soldier who is wondering, I don't know, this, th these things that Moses is uh, telling, telling us, uh, commanding us about the, the Canaanites, uh, I don't know if I want to get involved in that. And then you see, through Moses' leadership, the ground opening up and swallowing up uh, the, uh, the, those who are rebelling uh, with Korah and swallowing, uh, swallowing them up. You see, even before that, Moses uh, leading the Israelites through the Red Sea. And even before that, you see uh, Moses uh, bringing through, you know, by, by God's uh, power, bringing the plagues upon the Egyptian gods. And all the people saw how powerful the God of the Israelites was and is. And even as you as you move forward, as you keep going into the, uh, the Israelites coming to the land, the, the, the people uh, of Canaan know the power of this God. They are aware that this God is uh, able to overcome even the Egyptian gods. So we see this repeated throughout the historical books, that this God who brought the Israelites out of Egypt uh, is one who is the one true God, who shows himself through signs and wonders. Uh, so, so we see that there is some uniqueness here with regard to the unfolding of salvation history, that God is at work in the people of Israel through the leadership of Moses and Joshua in a way that he is not in a post-biblical era. We see that there, is, there are public signs that accompany these commands. And we'll get into some more of the differences here. But we need to keep in mind that the commands that are given are two the Israelites, for a particular period of time to bring judgment upon a particular nation or group of nations. And it is the, the kind of act that is not repeatable. Uh, it's 
kind of a, it's a, it's, it's unique. It's, uh, it, it's, it's not the sort of thing that is going to be repeated uh, throughout history with the people of God. We also see that God is one who brings judgment upon the Canaanites at the right time. He waits until the time is ripe for judgment. So when Moses, uh, sorry, when Abraham has been commanded by God to leave his, uh, leave Ur of the Chaldeans and to go to a land that God is going to show him, he has very cordial relations with the, the people of the land, uh, that there is a, an amiability that is there. Uh, yes, there is the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah and so forth, but there is a, a, you know, a, a cordiality there uh, that, that, that Abraham experiences with the local people. And it is not the right time for judgment. The land can only be taken. The land that God has promised to the people of Israel to inhabit can only be taken when the time is right for judgment, not before. And so it is not as though, uh, you know, some people say, well, what if some nation invaded yours? And they say, well, God told us to do it. Well, again, we're talking about a cir circumstance in which God is weaving together his purposes of the uh, the, the saving purposes that he has in store through Israel to bring the Messiah uh, into this context, but simultaneously bringing judgment upon a very wicked people. And when we're talking about wicked, we are talking about a people who are engaging in not just some alternative lifestyle, but acts that would be considered criminal activities in any civilized society. Ritual Sacrifice of infants, ritual prostitution, bestiality, incest. So God waits until the Canaanites have become thoroughly degraded, until they are ripe for judgment. And so God tells Abraham himself that, that this will come hundreds of years later, that judgment will fall when the sin of the Amorites has been filled up. Let's take a little bit of a philosophical detour here because it's important for us to understand the commands that God is giving with a little bit more precision. As you read the philosophical literature, for example, you see that there are distinctions between certain types of duties, that there are, for example, absolute duties, and we read the, about this in scripture, that we are commanded absolutely to love God, uh, not to engage in idolatry. Those are absolutes. There is no variation on that theme. Those are fixed. Those are cut and dried. There is no, uh, you know, no uh, uh, qualification to that. But we also have general duties, duties that hold but there may be certain overriding considerations. Yes, all things being equal, you should not deceive. All things being equal, you shouldn't kill another person. But what happens, for example, when you are hiding Jews in your basement? The Nazis come and they want to take innocent human life. Well, we see that deception even in scripture, is morally permissible when human life, innocent human life, is jeopardized. 
So we see this, for example, with the midwives in, uh, in Egypt, and, as they, and they're deceiving Pharaoh uh, about these uh, young Hebrew boys, and they're not wanting to, uh, to put them to death. Uh, we see that with Rahab in, uh, in the book of Joshua, chapter 2, where she uh, sends off the spies uh, you know, in, in a different direction than what she tells the authorities. And so she is commended, indeed, for her faith in James chapter 2 and Hebrews 11. Some people will say, well, no, yeah, she's commended for her faith, but not for her deception. Well, let's bring God into the picture here. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, God himself commands deception to Samuel when Samuel is told to anoint a new king because Saul has been disobedient. He's been compromised. And so Samuel says, if someone, if Saul hears about this, he's going to kill me. So what does God tell him? He says, if anyone asks you why you're going to Bethlehem, tell them that you are going to Bethlehem to offer a sacrifice. So here is, you know, that's not the intention, ultimately. He's going to anoint a, a new king. But if you need kind of an excuse, uh, you can give them this, uh, this excuse that you're going to, that you're going to sacrifice. So there is deception that is permissible. God himself in Israelites' warfare sets an ambush for the enemies of Israel. So God is engaging in deception even there. So we see in criminal activity and in warfare, uh, deception, in just warfare at any rate, uh, that there would be uh, deception as morally permissible. General, again, general duty, don't deceive. But there may be overriding considerations for when this is uh, when the, when this could take place. Uh, we could we also see this when, for example, the uh, you know in an ectopic pregnancy, when and when there is a uh, you know the fertilized egg trapped in a woman's fallopian tube. If there is not, unfortunately, uh, if that that child's life is not taken, both the mother and the unborn human being will die. And so it is, uh, it is a, a tragic necessity. But again, in these overriding circumstances, it would be morally permissible to do so, to take that innocent uh, life. And many ethical systems acknowledge this, uh, these, these sorts of distinctions, that there may be overriding circumstances, supreme emergencies, where these sorts of general rules can be uh, overridden uh, and, uh, and, 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 and uh, we see the scenarios in which we do. And again, this brings us to the, the question of difficult versus impossible commands, and this brings us to another, uh, another, uh, another scenario that we could, we could articulate. That God does issue difficult commands, and we should think that that, of course, is possible given that God is the, in fact, expected, given that God is the cosmic authority, that there would be commands that God issues that are difficult. Uh, it would not be the, the proper picture of a cosmic authority who simply commands things that we are always agreeable uh, or amenable to. And so in this case, we see that God does issue some difficult commands. But we should distinguish between this and an impossible command. And indeed, there are some things that God says that he would not command, that, that did not even enter God's mind. So it might be a difficult command, for example, to, for a president or a prime minister when terrorists have hijacked a plane 
to order that plane to be shot out of the sky, even though it means the killing of innocent men, women, and children on board in order to prevent uh, further widespread destruction of life uh, if they use that uh, plane as, uh, the terrorists use that plane as a, as a weapon to destroy many thousands of lives as we did see on September 11th. So when we look at these, this scenario of, yes, indeed, difficult commands with regard to the Canaanites, rather than saying, oh, God couldn't command the killing of the Canaanites because he's necessarily good, rather saying because God is necessarily good, he would have very good reason for doing so. So there's that difference between difficult and impossible that we should keep in mind. God as being a necessarily good being would not command something that is intrinsically evil. If something is intrinsically evil, God would not do it. If we find that God is commanding something that seems a little difficult to us, a little hard to understand, well, maybe we need to think along the lines of, well, if, if God did command this, then he must have a very good overriding, morally justifiable reason for doing so. But there's more, uh, there's more nuance to tease out here. God is concerned about the spiritual integrity and the moral integrity of his people. And so when he makes a covenant with them, he is, he is holding them to a standard of obedience that will, you know, and out of this context of obedience, of faithfulness, that there will be a Messiah who will come, who will finally bring fulfillment to all of those institutions and, and events from the Old Testament, and they will find full clarity and fulfillment uh, in him. And so God joins himself to, this, to a people, makes a covenant with them, and commands them to be obedient. And so as an expression of their, uh, their, their, um, their co covenant love for God, they will be obedient to the laws that God has laid down for them. God says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. There's a picture of grace. And then he gives the command, you shall have no other gods before me. But when the Israelites violate that, when they do the sorts of things that the Canaanites do, then they act actually in a treasonous fashion. And we see this happening in the incident in, in Numbers 25 when there is the, uh, when the Israelites are acting, it says they're, you know, they're acting treacherously, treasonously, when they join themselves to Baal at Peor. So they are engaged in idolatry and sexual immorality. And what, is, what this is actually a picture of is not just they're, they're, they're doing something that God just doesn't like. No, they're actually fundamentally cutting at the heart of this covenant relationship that God has with his people. And so it is a treasonous act because it threatens the very integrity of the people that God has called out for himself through whom the blessing uh, of Abraham would come to the ends of the earth. So, so when there is this kind of loss of integrity, it's kind of like John Walker Lind uh, going over to join uh, the Taliban in, fighting in Afghanistan and fighting against his own people, Americans. You know, it, 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 that sort of activity threatens the integrity 
of a nation. It, it, it flies in the face of that nation's identity and all that it stands for. And so when we see this kind of idolatry uh, in the book of Numbers and, of course, the sorts of actions that the Israelites would engage in in, uh, you know, in their history, imitating the Canaanites, this is a threat to their identity, a threat to their integrity. It is a tantamount to an act of treason. Let me go back to the... Um, uh, to Deuteronomy 7, which I uh, read earlier, uh, what I wanted to do is highlight something here that, uh, that, that often goes unnoticed. God seems to be more concerned about the destruction of Canaanite religion than he is with Canaanites themselves. So we just read in, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, it says, when you enter the land, when the Lord your God delivers uh, the, uh, these uh, before you, these uh, Canaanites, uh, and you shall defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You see utter destruction there. But keep reading. It says, You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. But I thought they were just destroyed. Don't make a covenant with them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. But I thought they were destroyed. No, don't intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they shall turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, and the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. Thus you shall do, thus, but thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, hew down their asherim, and burn their graven images with fire. You are to be a holy, uh, holy people to the Lord your God, etc., etc. So, here you see a couple of things. One, God is concerned about the destruction of Canaanite religion. God is concerned about the Israelites not intermingling with the Canaanites. But notice that this comes after these com commands to utterly destroy and, uh, and uh, uh, seemingly annihilate these, uh, these Canaanites. But it seems that this is really the focus really the, the, the religion of the Canaanites uh, that, is the, uh, that is the concern. Now, we see an interesting uh, theme that comes about, and, and I'll just, um, uh, I'll, I'll just, let, me just I, let me just shift on to, uh, to, part, uh, to part two. Uh, and I do, you know, in the, in the book, uh, Did God Really Command Genocide? We have a chapter that is dedicated to examining cases in the former Yugoslavia, where terms like genocide and ethnic cleansing are used. And as we look at the charge of genocide and we compare it to what took place in the former Yugoslavia, uh, we see that what is being used as the terminology for, for genocide it actually does not fit the biblical picture. So even according to modern-day definitions of what we would call genocide, uh, does not fit with what is going on in the biblical text. And we'll, and we'll now start unpacking uh, some of the biblical text to, uh, to explore that a little bit more. So let's look at part two uh, uh, briefly here. We see the language, first of all, of driving out the Canaanites. Now what you should notice here is that driving out the Canaanites stands in stark juxtaposition to utterly destroying, leaving alive nothing that breathes. Do you see, if you are driving out people, you are not killing them. 
the same words are used for you know, Adam and Eve being driven out of the garden or uh, David being driven out of the presence of Saul. Uh, you know, still alive, but removed from their uh, presence. And the language of dispossessed, driven out, displaced, and so forth uh, is much more common than the language of utter destruction uh, when, it, when it comes to the, uh, the, the Canaanites, uh, which suggests that these people survive, that this is more the language of displacement rather than death. So that's uh, something nuanced that often doesn't get introduced into uh, the discussion. Another nuanced uh, feature of the language here is that we see a lot of hyperbole uh, being displayed. Terms like utterly destroy, leave alive nothing that breathes, this was stock or stereotypical language in ancient Near Eastern war texts. And when people would read war texts in the ancient Near East, or they would you know, hear recountings of warfare, and they heard someone utterly destroyed or turned to ash, the enemy, well, you could have just a narrow victory, and you could use that sort of language. It was very hyperbolized, very dramatized for effect. Sort of like when basketball teams uh, play against one another, and some, some team wins, and they say, we totally slaughtered them, we destroyed them. It's, you know, when you hear that sort of language, you don't think, oh, they, they, you know, the basketball team didn't survive. They're all dead. No, that's not, you know, in, in the same way, that was what the ancient Near Eastern ear heard when these war texts uh, were using that kind of language. And we see this in Judges chapters 1 and 2. You know, we read Joshua, and we see that there seems to be this widespread, you know, uh, the, the land finally has rest and all the enemies are subdued and so forth. Well, actually, you keep reading in, in Joshua and you see that, well, there are actually still a lot of enemies there. Joshua says there are a lot more nations to be, you know, a lot more people to be driven out here. And, in fact, you get to Judges, which is literally connected to Joshua. And you see in chapters 1 and 2 the repetition of this, this, the, the clause, they could not drive them out. They could not drive them out. They could not drive them out. They could not drive out these Canaanite peoples. In fact, some of them were there to this day, the text says. But yet, we read the language of Joshua that tells us, you know, you know we, we, we left none alive that breathed. Uh, and, and so, there, you know, I, was, I had a debate with um, uh, Norman Backrack, who's the head of the London Humanist Society, and you can listen to this on Justin Brierley's uh, unbelievable uh, you know, radio program. And, uh, and Norman Backrack was saying, well, look, the text is so plain when it says they utterly destroyed them, they left alive nothing that breathed. And I said, well, you're only reading one side of the text. I said, you're not reading the language where it says they could not drive them out. They could not drive them out. They could not drive them out. I said, if you're going to take, you know, why is it that you don't take that language at face value? Why is it that you take they utterly destroyed them? at face value, but you don't want to see the other side of the picture. And I said my encouragement to you is to keep reading the text, keep looking uh, more closely and seeing that there are tensions here, and it's not this straightforward slam-dunk picture of, uh, of utter destruction, end of story. In fact, I've given you in the handout this, uh, this chart that suggests not some military blitzkrieg, but rather a gradual infiltration of the people of Israel into the land of Canaan. 
Uh, on the one hand, we have language of extermination. And then we read that the same people who are allegedly exterminated, there they are, back on the scene. No extermination. We do see, yes, victory. Uh, what Kenneth Kitchen, the biblical, archaeologi- the, the biblical archaeologist, uh, notes you know, in his book uh, you know, on, the, on the reliability of the Old Testament, he sees that these are disabling raids, that the, the people of Israel go to this city, they engage in a raid, and then what they do is they go back to their base camp at Gilgal. So it's not as though they're just taking over one city after another. They're going to these cities, engaging in raids. And again, these cities are the places where you've got the political, military, and religious leaders. It's, these are not typically uh, the, uh, inhabited by the, 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 the common populace, by, uh, by the, your civilians. Uh, but these are specialized uh, military citadels where they would keep grains that were used you know, for taxes, you know, the, the, the grains that were given, you know, documents and so forth. Now, it was, it was, it was, these were not places where, where, where um, civilians uh, were typically hanging out. They were more like citadels or fortresses. But at any rate, we see this sort of language of, on the one hand, extermination, leaving alive, nothing to breathe, and then you keep reading, and those same peoples are still up and around. Uh, and so, so even in the, uh, as you read the, uh, the, the capture of uh, the, you know, the story of, you know, AI or I uh, after the, 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 um, uh, the Battle of Jericho, you see the language of it looks like the, the people from I are destroyed and then, you know, there's nobody left alive and then they're still fighting. There are more people seemingly there and then they seem to get destroyed and then there are other people, you know, who seem to be around after that and then they get destroyed. So, so how are we to make sense of this? Well, if you understand the nature of the ancient Near Eastern war texts and how there was exaggeration, it, 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 it fits very nicely. It, it makes a lot of sense. So there's a, a nuanced picture uh, that we see here. Let me mention something about the Midianites. We, we see that there are the Canaanites here. We see that there's a, a mixed picture here. It's not the, uh, as I said, the decisive blitzkrieg that uh, many people have in their minds about the, the warfare with the, uh, with the Canaanites. Um, but with regard to the Midianites, after the Midianites, uh, through, again, through the instigation of Balaam, uh, lead the Israelites into sin, uh, God says in chapter 31 to kill every, you know, to kill all the men. Well, so they go in onto this, uh, you know, they go and undertake this, uh, this, and, and, this task, and it says that they did all that the Lord commanded by uh, utterly destroying them. Well, do we have the utter destruction of all the males, uh, or all the men at least? Well, if, if we even see that, you know, it's interesting that even in the battle there isn't one Israelite casualty, which again seems to suggest that maybe there is a little bit more going on here uh, than, than a straightforward account. We also see, as we read in the, later on in the book of Judges, we see that rather than being a, a massive wipeout of the Midianites, we see that those Midianites are back a generation or two later raiding the Israelites, and it says that they are too numerous to count. Even their camels are too numerous to count. Uh, so we see that, you know, on the one hand, what looks like annihilation, but then on the other hand, we have, again, an abundance of people. We see the same sort of thing happening with regard to the Amalekites. We see, we come across them uh, 
you know, first of all, primarily in the, uh, you know, when the Israelites have come through the Red Sea, and they are weak, they are weary, and then they are attacked by the Amalekites, a nomadic uh, group of raiders. They come and they battle against the Israelites who are not prepared for battle. And so there is a victory that the Israelites have. Remember, Aaron and Hur are holding up the arms of Moses. He's praying for the, the Israelites, and they have, finally have uh, victory uh, over the Amalekites. Well, the Amalekites are a thorn in the side of the Israelites for nearly a thousand years. They are perpetually at the Israelites, aimed at their destruction. And so we see, again, the command that comes to Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites. Well, this doesn't come in a vacuum. Even in the preceding chapter, in 1 Samuel 14, 48, the Amalekites had just engaged in raiding the Israelites. And so God says, okay, um, you know, utterly wipe them out. Man, woman, child, animal, etc. Well, what's going on? Well, actually, as you read in the text, it looks like there is a decisive battle at one particular location. There is a citadel. And, uh, and, and uh, in fact, there is a, you know, the, the Kenites are told, you know, if you want to leave now, uh, it's better to pull out because we're, going to be, we're engaged in battle with the, with the Amalekites. And so they, they pull out. So they're given this chance. So it, it doesn't seem to be uh, a, a battle against men, women, and children. It seems to be a military, uh, a military assault. And then, it's, then we're told that Saul, we're told this twice, once by the narrator and then once by Saul himself when he's speaking to Samuel, that Saul utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Saul utterly destroys them. And then Saul says, I did what the Lord commanded. I utterly destroyed the Amalekites. And then it goes on to talk about, well, what's this bleeding of uh, you know, sheep uh, you know, and you know, lowing of cattle that I hear? Well, he didn't destroy the animals who were apparently in this citadel as well. And so he is rebuked. In fact, the kingship is finally taken away from him. And that's why in chapter 16, the next chapter, we see that Samuel is going to anoint a new king. Well, you know, these Amalekites are not just being uh, attacked because, well, God said so, and the Israelites were, you know, they were the insiders and the Amalekites were the outsiders. No, it was a matter of these people were instigating hostilities against the Israelites in this particular context, not to mention time and time again. And so Saul engages in attacking them, and, and they're called. You know, and we see that they're, they're, they're the king who is left behind, um, you know, he is, you know, he is one who himself had been engaged in leaving you know, women childless. And so Samuel finally thrusts him through, and you know, saying that you're going to get what you've done to others. You've left women childless. Well, your mom's going to be left childless because uh, because of your uh, because of the act, the actions in which, that you've undertaken. So we see that there is, again, much more nuance here. And as you keep reading in the same book, 1 Samuel, keep reading, and you will see that there is, even though it looks like, you know, according to the language, the army, you know, the Amalekites have been wiped out, we see David engaging in a battle using, you know, with the same terrain, the same geographical boundaries. He's fighting the same Amalekites. In fact, he engages in a raid and 400 Amalekites end up escaping. So we don't have that kind of language that speaks of utter annihilation. 
and that we ought to take literally, but rather there's a lot more nuance. It's that ancient Near Eastern hyperbole or exaggeration that we see taking place here. It's interesting, too, that as we keep reading in the, in the Old Testament, we see that a place like Jeremiah, where God is threatening judgment upon the people of Judah, he says in 25.9, I will, use the same word, I will utterly destroy the people of Judah and make them an everlasting desolation. Their city is going to be everlasting desolation. Well, you keep reading and you get to the end of the book and we see that that's not so. We see that, yes, there are people who are led off into Babylonian, the Babylonian captivity. We see you know, many who are left behind staying in the land, including Jeremiah himself. So it's not as, it's not that, you know, as decisive and, and, and utterly, you know, this utter annihilation that, uh, that, that we, we see. So wherever we see utter annihilation, you know, leaving alive nothing that breathes, we will also see alongside that plenty of survivors. So there's a lot more nuance that we need to take into account here. And so that kind of language that is being used simply is an ancient Near Eastern way of speaking of a decisive victory. Um, just like when, you know, when, you know, when the Israelites, or sorry, when Judah was finally decimated by the Babylonians, well, their, you know, their, their temple system was down, their economy was ruined, their political, you know, their, their king was taken, uh, you know, was, was, uh, you know, was, was taken captive, and, you know, Zedekiah and, and so forth. You know, all of these things were falling apart. The, you know, the, the, the country was disintegrating, uh, in, you know, economically, politically, religiously, and so forth. But there were plenty of survivors there. But it was, it was devastating for, uh, for the people of Judah, of course. It's interesting that as we look at the language in the Pentateuch, the Book of Moses, uh, and beyond, uh, you know, when we see the language of, of God commanding the destruction of the Canaanites, we read about Joshua as he's carrying this out. It says that Joshua did all that Moses commanded. We see that repeatedly, for example, in chapter 11, that Joshua is faithfully carrying out the command of Moses, but yet there are lots of survivors. What's going on here? Well, it seems that Moses himself, in issuing this command, did not have in mind utter annihilation, you know, the utter destruction uh, of, uh, of the Canaanites, uh, but rather in, uh, in, 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 in gaining, well, for one thing, it was a, a per, the, the driving out. He was calling them to drive out the people and those who were foolish enough to remain behind left themselves in, in a position of vulnerability. They were, you know, they, were, they were jeopardizing their own lives by staying behind. And of course, it's interesting, you've got this, you know, the people of Israel who have with them the, the, the tab, you know, the, over the tabernacle, over the camp of Israel and especially at the, the tabernacle, the center of the camp, you have a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. So you have you know, any Canaanite who is kind of peeping over the, the, the rim of the, uh, you know, of, the, you know, of the hills to look upon the camp of the Israelites sees that there is something very decisive, something very supernatural going on here, that this is the God who is you know, manifesting his presence in the very camp, heart of the camp of the Israelites. Again, something for them to be fearful about. And, of course, reason for them to flee rather than to stick around because this is the God who, after all, did uh, trump the gods of Egypt. So if, God, if Moses is commanding utter destruction and 
Joshua carries all of that out, but yet we don't have utter destruction in, a, in, a literal, in anywhere approaching a literal way, then Moses himself, we, we, the, we could infer, it does not have in mind you know, utter annihilation or destruction. Let me just say a, a couple of things in conclusion here. I've given you uh, a lot to think about, and we'll have some time for Q&A uh, shortly. But I think as we look at these sorts of texts, and we, we, we do see a God who is severe. Now, Romans 11.22 says, Behold the kindness and severity of God. Or as C.S. Lewis says in the line which in the wardrobe, talking about Aslan, that Aslan, this Jesus figure, is good, but he's not safe. God is good, but he is not safe. He is the cosmic authority. Yes, he is kind. He is gracious and compassionate, but he's also severe. He is not. He is one. As in, again, again, in Exodus 34, gracious, compassionate, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. And so as we look at a God who is the cosmic authority, we recognize that God is one who takes sin seriously. He brings judgment upon people. And for those who are wondering, well, doesn't the God of the Old Testament seem a lot different than the God of the New Testament? No, actually there is a remarkable continuity. Uh, and we see Jesus as, as really bridging that kind of uh, gap by showing that he is in line with the prophets uh, of the Old Testament. He identifies himself with the God of the Old Testament. Uh, he sees himself as that, that, uh, you know, that God's agent. Uh, he is the one who stands in the place of God uh, and, and speaks words of judgment, speaks words of wrath, uses language of cutting them into pieces. Uh, you know, there is that sort of very strong language that Jesus also utilizes. But people see Jesus as this Marvelous moral teacher, someone who speaks with the highest moral wisdom. Well, this is the Jesus who talks about bringing judgment upon those who resist the purposes of God and using very forceful and strong language. The theologian from Yale, uh, Miroslav Volf, uh, grew up in the former Yugoslavia, Croatia, and he tells the story about how as a budding theologian he thought the idea of a God who gets angry was somehow beneath the, 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 a maximally great being status, that, 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 that the greatest conceivable being simply could not be a God who gets angry. And then when he went through the, uh, the, the horrors of the warfare in the former Yugoslavia, where, you know, again, you know, hundreds of thousands of people were killed uh, and, and displaced, uh, you know, women raped, uh, villages burned, and so forth. He said it was then that his awareness of a God who gets angry was awakened, that a God who sees sin, who sees injustice, is not simply going to dote upon the perpetrators and in a grand, grandfatherly fashion and, uh, and, uh, and, and basically assume that, uh, that this is just going to happen and, and simply to work toward a patch, patching up of reconciliation. No, uh, he said he, could not, he found that he could not worship a god unless he got angry, that God does not get angry because he doesn't love, but he gets angry because God is love. 
And even as we see God exhibiting judgment in the Old Testament and in the New, it is not because he delights in bringing judgment on the wicked. He would rather see the wicked turn from their evil ways and live. And so as we look at the question of the Canaanites uh, and the Midianites and the Amalekites, uh, these are the sorts of things that we need to be considering to have a fuller, I think, more robust theological and moral picture uh, as we undertake the question of did God really command genocide? And the answer is no, he did not. All right, let me uh, allow you to, I don't know if it's time for a Q&A here, but uh, maybe I've gone too long and it's time to wrap up, but uh, whatever the will of Ryan we'll is. some questions over here. Okay, very good. That was fun, Paul. That was but it was, inter- it was enjoyable, that's for sure. Thank you. All right. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. I think your presentation is winsome and it's persuasive. Uh, My question is whether it's well attested in church history amongst biblical commentators, um, and if not, why not? Yeah. Um, In church history, you do have people who allegorize these texts. Um, Even someone like the philosopher Richard Swinburne uh, of Oxford uh, takes these texts to be... be, um, uh, again, spiritualized or you know, t- treats them in that same allegorical fashion that uh, this sort of a thing could not have, uh, have taken place. Um, but I think it's helpful to, uh, to keep in mind that um, you, know, you, you, you frequently see the language in the, in the New Testament, for example, in, uh, when Stephen is speaking in Acts chapter 7. Uh, he speaks about these, uh, these nations that have been dispossessed. Paul, in, in uh, Acts chapter 13, speaks about these nations that had been, uh, been dispossessed. Uh, and, and you do have, the, uh, again, that, uh, that language of, uh, you know, again, that fits very, very well with, uh, with, what, I've been, uh, with what I've been saying. But, but, but there is certainly a mixed bag. There are some who, uh, you know, in, in church history do take this, uh, this language as being, you know, as they read it, uh, you know, maybe you know, shrinking back <clears throat> in horror and thus you know, allegorizing it so that it does not uh, appear as though God is commanding something that would, uh, would involve this kind of widespread killing and so forth. So, so there, is, there, is that, there is a tension there, I, I, I grant you that. But, uh, but what I'm trying to do is take us back to the actual text itself so that we can look at the, the various nuances uh, you know, in the Old Testament itself and, uh, and, and see for ourselves that there is, uh, there's more going on to it than a, a more surface reading uh, of, that, uh, of the text. And, and so, so, again, that's how I'd put it just in, in the briefest of terms. So thank you. Okay, okay, yes. Hey, I'd like to also thank you for the talk. Um, like a lot of people in here, I find myself in conversations with the new atheists, and so I'm just trying to imagine how they might push back. So I'm going to try to put on their shoes and hope that you could help me respond to this objection. Um, let's take this passage in Deuteronomy 7, mm-hmm. and you're wanting us to look at both sides of it. So I want to know, is, is God just dumb in saying, hey, I want you to kill them all, and then... But don't marry him, even though they're supposed to be dead. Or does he just know that his people are going to be that disobedient? Or am I to interpret this, destroy all of them in sort of a way like a basketball coach might encourage his team to destroy the other team 
in which case, haven't I undermined the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture? seems like I'm on the horns of a dilemma, and no matter what I do, I'm in trouble. I'm sure you can uh, help us all figure out how we should respond to that kind of objection from atheists. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I would encourage you to do is just give a listen to that um, debate that I had with the, uh, with the atheist Norman Backrack uh, on the unbelievable uh, radio program in which I'm saying, you know, you're talking about perspicacity, uh, the, the clarity of Scripture, and, uh, and here we see God saying utterly destroy, but uh, what, we're, you know, what we're doing is we are not taking into consideration the very nature of the language itself. Uh, when you are dealing with people who are speaking in terms of hyperbole, uh, then you take that into account, and especially when you see that there are tensions within the text itself. It's not as though you have um, a, a simple uniform rendering of we left alive nothing that breathes, and then there's nothing to counter that. What do you do with the survivors when it says we utterly destroyed them, but yet you have an abundance of survivors? You've got to come to terms with that. And if you're only going to play one side of the debate and make it look like uh, they've all been you know, destroyed and this is the intention, but yet when we're told that they've been utterly destroyed and yet there are lots of survivors, you refuse to acknowledge that, then there's a, a problem here. When it comes to the perspicacity of Scripture, uh, the clarity of Scripture, you know, this is different from something like the resurrection of Jesus. It's not as the, some people say, well, doesn't this throw into question the resurrection of Jesus, for example? What if, what if we can just say that that's some sort of a spiritualization, uh, that Jesus' body didn't really rise from the dead or didn't come back from the dead? Well, you know, here, what we have in the New Testament is one uniform, you know, one, you know, account after another that is uniform. It's not as though we have, on the one hand, people saying, well, Jesus' body uh, came from the tomb, but yet, on the other hand, people saying, well, yeah, Jesus' body did, you know, did, or Jesus did rise, but his body remained in the tomb. And so it, it's, it's not that sort of a, uh, a clash that you see. And so what I want people to do is go back to the text and see that there are tensions there and acknowledge those tensions and say, you know, were these writers foolish? Did they not know any, any better? I'm saying, no, they were taking into account certain literary conventions that were common in that day, just as poetry uses a lot of hyperbole, uses a lot of metaphorical language. So should we, you know, should we hold it against the biblical writers as being dumb or something if they're saying, oh, the, you know, the trees of the field will clap their hands and so forth? Oh, don't they know any better? You know, it seems that you see a lot of metaphorical language uh, in, the, in, the, in the Psalms and the prophets even, and, and we take into account that there are different types of genres within Scripture, and we read them, you know, a genre is like a contract between the narrator and the reader, that you will abide by certain rules as you read those texts, rather than imposing a certain uh, maybe demand of, well, look at what it says, it's so clear that it's saying utterly destroy, well, are you really reading it according to the, that contract that the that that you're supposed to have with the with the author, um, who ha is operating by certain rules, and you need to try to understand those rules. And part of the understanding of those rules is to actually look at some of those tensions uh, within the text and say, oh, actually, you know, there's there's something more going on here. And so even if you can't finally resolve those issues to uh, to perfection, 
you can at least point out some of those tensions and say, you know, you need to acknowledge those rather than simply gloss over those. Yes? Um, I think that the, the previous question was very much like my question. So some of it was answered, but I still am kind of um, shaky about the understanding how we can open the door saying that this particular section of scripture is an exaggeration and it not be able to be applied in other sections. And even with what you're saying about the language of that particular um, kind of idea in scripture about warfare, could you not say that the entire thing was an exaggeration and God didn't actually talk to the Israelites at all and that was just kind of something that they were exaggerating on? And yeah. if um, I also wanted to know if there was an uh, example of a war or that kind of language in which they were actually utterly destroyed. Yeah, well, sure. Happy to mention that. I mean, think of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, utter destruction in the way that we would take it, not the ancient Near East. And you also see the language of, uh, you know, the, the, the flood of Noah uh, is, you know, is a picture of utter destruction. And that's just what you have. Uh, there's no variation or nuance there. Uh, and we go with a straightforward reading of that, uh, you know, in you know, in the absence of anything that should raise the question of tensions or uh, or, or something to uh, perhaps raise uh, suspicions that maybe something more is going on. Uh, you just don't have that, and so those would be examples. Or even I'd say you, you, you know, and and we talk about this in the book. Uh, we talk about the flood of Noah as well in the book in Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, but we, where we point out that you that say the the fighting of the you know, the warfare against the Benjamites uh, at the end of the book of Judges. We we see that as being straightforward, where there is widespread destruction that looks more like an on-the-ground report uh, rather than uh, it being uh, more the hyperbolized war text of Joshua. So so we go into detail on that and try to deal with that issue uh, fairly. And so it's not as though we're just glossing over every portion of Scripture that talks about uh, utter destruction uh no there are you know there are places where we we would affirm uh like the flood of noah and so forth or sodom and gomorrah and uh and, and other places where we do see tensions that exist that can't simply be uh wiped away thank you all right thank you very much hi i had two questions i'm glad because i asked mine two questions. very much enjoyed your books by the way they're very good books um as a practical question uh, what would you suggest uh, for an apologist? Say me, and there's a certain objection. Say uh, the people who rise in Matthew, not Jesus, but the others who rise from the tomb, or the genocide of the Canaanites. And in the apologetic literature, there's the Michael Lycona argument that it's apocalyptic and representative. And there's the Paul Copan argument that it's kind of a fish story war genre. And personally... I don't Did you say fish story? Yes, like an exaggeration. Yeah, fish story. Okay, all right. Okay. I personally don't buy either of those arguments, but as a practical matter, would you suggest as an apologist... You don't buy, you don't buy either of the arguments of Mike Lycona or me? Yes. Okay, I just want so, to make sure I'm clear. Right. As an apologist, though, would you recommend if I meet someone who's got a real problem with genocide or the resurrection to say, well, you know, Lacona says this and Copan says this. That's so Copan, kind of, by the way. Copan? Accent on the first syllable. Copan. Uh, Copan. Anyway, yeah. Copan. I'm there you from go. Tennessee. Um, 
Could I, would you suggest say, well, you know, Copan says this, or Lacona says this, to kind of clear that objection away so I can get to the gospel, even though at a later conversation they might come back and say, do you believe it? Well, no. But would you suggest using arguments that are plausible in nature to clear away the cobwebs? Well, let me, let me ask you, I mean, just out of curiosity, uh, what would your reply be uh, to, uh, to those sorts of questions before I get into mine? Uh, God is the creator of all. He has the right for the vessels he makes that some are made for destruction and some are not. I, really, God can't create command genocide in the sense that genocide is like some murderous sin and God can pretty much do whatever he wants without being in a euthyphro dilemma as far as want. But God ha has the right to that land for his people. And okay. they're evil. Okay, all right. So um, could... Are there any things that God could not command? Um, he couldn't command something that he already commanded not to do. Like, like for example, could, he, could, we, could we just say, well, you know, in, in the book of Jeremiah, it says that these are things that I did not command, nor did it even enter my mind. Well, God can do what he wants. He could have commanded those things after all. He's God after all, isn't he? Yes, he has a right to do whatever he wants. And he well, but God himself said, but, but, God, but God himself said that he did not command these things, nor did it even enter his mind. It sounds like God cannot command what is intrinsically evil. Would you agree? I would agree because okay. good's in his nature. It's worth okay, all right. Well, I just want, I think it's important to get that clear um, because that can lead to a lot of confusion. If you say God can do whatever he wants, well, oh, God can command something that's evil. Uh, he can just command the opposite and so forth. Right. So, so it's important that you clarify that um, because as you posed it, it sounds like, well, it's just a moral free-for-all here. No and you don't idea. want to communicate that. Right. Um, uh, I think it can be helpful to point out to people that there are alternative readings of this. Some people have interpreted it as, you know, these texts as allegorical. Uh, these are, uh, you know, that that guy Copan uh, <laughs> thinks that th this is hyperbole, and you know, and you can maybe say I, he may have a point uh, because there are tensions within the text. Um, my view is that uh, blah blah blah. Uh, well, fine. I think it's helpful to to lay out some of those alternatives. That it's not as though you know, it, it, everything rests upon how you have interpreted it, and if maybe the person finds your view uh, way off, maybe there's at least, oh, you know, but they did say that that Copan view did talk about hyperbole and exaggeration. Maybe I should check that one out, because I don't agree with this Tennessean's view. Uh, <laughs> so, so, you know, but, but I think it is helpful to lay those out. I mean, Charles Tolliver, uh, noted philosopher of religion, uh, talks about how it's helpful for philosophers of religion uh, and even atheistic philosophers of religion to talk about the attributes of God and to, understand, and to see you know, when they raise criticisms about a certain understanding of the attributes of God and, and maybe seeing that they somehow conflict with one another. Well, they may be looking at it from a certain angle, but there are other, philo Christian, say, Christian philosophers of religion who will say, but, but here's another way of looking at this or understanding the, uh, you know, the nature of God, uh, and so it, which, which totally bypasses that particular objection. So, so 
but may be helpful to to raise uh, an array of views and say, you know, there's there's some there's disagreement on this, and I wouldn't want you to write off uh, the you know this issue based on uh, some you know this your particular reading of the text when there are a number of alternative views to examine. So anyway, it might be helpful to to do it in a 